the individuals that we will parade before you to share their insight, their information, their knowledge, <coughs> their understanding about this most complex uh, country uh, would be hard to be matched, let alone surpassed, among uh, experts and specialists on the western side of the Atlantic. <clears throat> we will go in the following uh, sequence, uh, Ms. Mona Yakubian, then Mr. Ian Panel, and then with regard to Colonel David DeRoche and Ms. Sharon Waxman and Paul Sullivan. Uh, Mona Yakubian is known well within the Beltway as one of the uh, foremost specialists of American policymakers and analysts having to do with the eastern end of the Mediterranean. Uh, she's with the uh, Stimson uh, Foundation and is the head of its working group on Lebanon and has focused consistently on Syria. <clears throat> she previously had a an extensive stint in the Department of State and also was a senior policy advisor in the United States Institute for Peace. Uh, Ian Panel <clears throat> is the first time that we've been blessed and honored and privileged to have him participate in one of our events, uh, but he is a twice honored, prize-winning uh, journalist with the uh, BBC, for which he remains a commentator, and having received the Royal Television Society's uh, international uh, media uh, coverage <clears throat> for his focus uh, on Afghanistan, for his work from Cairo focusing on, on Iraq, and his courageous reporting on the front lines of Syria, not just in terms of newsworthiness, but in terms of putting his professional and physical courage on the line uh, in the process. Uh, Dave DeRoche is an alumnus of one of our programs, the Joseph J. Malone uh, Arab and Islamic Studies program, and an alumnus of the National Council's program in Syria. Uh, he previously was the director in the office of the Secretary of Defense for Arabia and the Gulf. Uh, he is now a professor at the Near East South Asia Center for Strategic Studies at the National Defense University of the U.S. Department of Defense. And he has just returned from last evening from Jericho dealing directly and indirectly with the kinds of issues that this uh, particular program uh, ad addresses. Uh, followed by Sharon Waxman, who comes at it from the humanitarian uh, aspect with regard <coughs> to the element of compassion regarding the international uh, refugee uh, dynamics, uh, where she is the head advocate of the international <coughs> refugee rescue committees, uh, programs in some 40 countries, and previously uh, having served as an aide to the late Senator Edward Kennedy. 
and to wind up with Professor Paul Sullivan, who is Professor of Economics at the National Defense University and Professor of National Security Studies at Georgetown University and a regular columnist for newspapers in Turkey. We will start with Mona Yakubian, and we've asked that those who have questions, uh, please write them on the three by five cards that are on your uh, seats, and these will be collected by our interns, and we will wade through them in terms of as many as possible and those as relevant as possible between now and noon. We thank C-SPAN uh, for making a decision uh, to film this live. Uh, it has an embarrassment of riches. Each day it can choose uh, from any number of worthy e events to enhance Americans and other people's knowledge and understanding of this region. And that it has chosen for five out of the last six of, of the National Council on U.S. Air Relations events uh, to film this live and thereby <clears throat> make its proceedings uh, available uh, to millions worldwide is uh, uh, an achievement of no small moment. Please join me in welcoming Ms. Mona Yakubian. Thank you, Dr. Anthony, for that very kind introduction. Good morning. I also want to thank the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations and the U.S.-GCC Corporate Cooperation Committee uh, for sponsoring this very important event. What I'd like to do, because I, I think it's more important, I want to keep my remarks brief. I'm sure there's going to be many questions and comments, but talk briefly about where we are right now in Syria and actually focus very specifically on the regional spillover, which is becoming much more prominent. Um, offer a couple of remarks about how we've got to where we are, and then conclude with some thoughts on U.S. Uh, policy. Um, in terms of where we are today in Syria, the uprising, the conflict actually now, is into its third year. It is by far the most brutal of the Arab uprisings. Um, death toll estimates range between 80 and 120,000 people killed thus far, mostly civilians. The situation on the ground is nothing short of a humanitarian catastrophe. And I know Sharon is going to address that, so I'm going to, I'm going to leave that dimension uh, to her. What I'd like to really focus on this morning is the regional spillover. And here I think the conflict has now morphed from a sectarian civil war to a much broader regional sectarian conflict. I think the events over the past couple of weeks mark a real inflection point in where we are and a very, very troubling turn in Syria's trajectory. So let's take a quick look. Uh, let's start with Lebanon. I think Lebanon in some ways is the most volatile uh, and fragile of Syria's neighbors. And events over the past couple of weeks really are extraordinarily significant in terms of the degree of spillover. We have now Lebanese Hezbollah Shiite fighters actively and openly engaged in Syria in the battle for Qusair, a strategic town in Syria. We have uh, reprisals taken against Hezbollah inside Lebanon. 
both by Syrian rebels from Syria and now more concerning in some ways from those within Lebanon. So we're seeing, I think, a melding or almost a melting, if you will, of the borders between Lebanon and Syria, where the arena for conflict is now broadening. And that has, I think, very serious and significant implications for Lebanon's stability. Um, in addition, if we look to Syria's other border with Iraq, another country with a very fragile sectarian makeup, we see that May was the most violent month in Iraq in five years, uh, with a dramatic uptick in sectarian violence, in part as a result of dynamics within Iraq, but also no doubt fed by the conflict in Syria in particular by the rise of Sunni jihadism in Syria feeding into a nascent or a resurgent actually Sunni jihadist element in Iraq and vice versa. So in some ways if we put all of that together we see the potential makings of a very broad swath of instability that stretches from the Mediterranean to Baghdad and beyond and I think that has huge implications for the region as well as for U.S. Uh, strategic interests. We also have had significant spillover this week uh, in, with Israel and here I think we then raise the specter of the potential for a broader conflagration between Israel and Syria. There was uh, battles that went on, clashes yesterday that went on uh, over the Golan Heights border crossing, the only border crossing between Syria and Israel, at, at which point at the rebels at one point had that crossing in their control. This is obviously very, very uh, concerning from an Israeli security perspective. Uh, we've already noted the Austrians are withdrawing their contingent from uh, the UN force that's responsible for monitoring that border. So from an Israeli perspective, what was once the quietest border for the last 40 years is now becoming perhaps its most dangerous. In addition, there are continuing and deepening concerns about the potential for this transfer of strategic weapons from the Assad regime to Hezbollah, the Syrian militant organization in Lebanon. This is of paramount concern to Israel. And we've seen already three missile strikes this year from Israel targeting such transfers. Israel has laid out a very clear red line that it will not abide the transfer of strategic weapons to Hezbollah or the loss of control of these weapons should they get into the hands of jihadist elements also active in Syria. In addition, we have, of course, continuing tension with Turkey. Uh, there, there was last month a double car bombing in the southern Turkish town of Rehanle, which again really underscores the ways in which the Syrian conflict is spilling over across the border to its neighbors. Uh, that bombing then provoked a lot of, of upset anger from the Turkish population uh, at Syrian refugees resident in, Syria, in Turkey. Uh, there, there has also been errant shells that have gone across the border in, in basically all of the countries bordering Syria. We also have, uh, finally, last but certainly not least, Jordan, 
which is bearing a significant strain with respect to refugees, uh, an infrastructure that already is stretched to the limit, where its resources are already uh, uh, stretched quite thin. And there is growing concern that the burden of Syrian refugees on Jordan's system is becoming untenable, and it could be the source for instability. So I think we can see essentially around the region a picture that is quite disturbing about how serious conflict is now no longer contained within its borders. We can talk, if people are interested in, in the question and answer, about what some of the measures might be that to mitigate some of that. But I think uh, we, we all really need to be braced for a conflict that is, that is going to be enduring and that will continue to have significant uh, effects both on regional stability and U.S. interest in the region. So let me take a step back for a moment and just talk a little bit about how did we get there. How did Syria go from one of the many Arab uprisings that started as peaceful protests, then morphed to a, a, an armed uprising, then from that to a sectarian civil war, and now verging on a much broader regional sectarian con conflagration? How did it get there? The situation on the ground in Syria, I think, has been in many ways extraordinarily dynamic. The pace, the velocity of events, I think, in many ways is unmatched, certainly by anything I've seen. Mm -hmm. But throughout all of this, there have been three constants from the very beginning that I would argue uh, are responsible for how Syria got to where it is today. The first is that from the beginning, the Syrian regime has viewed protests although peaceful, as an existential threat. As a result, they responded to those protests with disproportionate and now brutal force. And I also think, um, I have not been open to any, not think, they have not been open to any sort of reform, nor do I believe this regime is, is really open, at least the, the hardcore center of the regime, to any kind of negotiated exit. Second condition that has pertained from the beginning is that the Syrian opposition has been divided. It has been in a state of disarray. Arguably, the political opposition in Syria today is in a greater state of disarray than it's been. They have been unable to coalesce around a vision of what a post-Assad Syria would look like, and as a result, have been unable to attract significant elements from Syria's many minority populations, namely from the Alawites, uh, the sect from which the president hails, from the Christians, from the Kurds, from the Druze. And that's been a significant, I would say, failing of the opposition. Uh, in addition, we have even the current opposition as, as it's configured, uh, riven by personal rivalries, ideological differences, differences between those on the outside of Syria, those on the ground, differences between the political opposition and the armed elements, and so forth. Third, the international community has been essentially at a stalemate from the beginning, unable to forge a consensus on how to handle the question of Syria. In particular, I think at the top of this, of course, are enduring differences between the United States and mm -hmm. Russia but also differences in the region between Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Turkey on the one hand, primary supporters of the opposition, 
and Iran as the primary, most staunch ally of the regime on the other. As a result, the UN has been unfortunately rendered essentially ineffective, certainly at the level of the Security Council on how to deal with Syria. So it's the interplay of these factors, I would argue, that has led Syria to, to where it is today. Very, very briefly, and then I'll conclude, in terms of U.S. policy, uh, I think uh, U.S. policy has been marked from the beginning by a statement by, made by President Obama in August of 2011 that Bashar al-Assad must step aside. That has been and continues to be the U.S. position on Syria. Uh, its policies towards Syria have been largely focused on <coughs> diplomatic isolation of the regime, uh, promotion of economic sanctions, assistance to the opposition in terms of both helping to try and bridge some of these gaps that I just mentioned, as well as training and technical assistance to um, those elements of the opposition or those on the ground who are already involved in some level of governance in areas that are beyond uh, the regime's control. Um, there, the U.S. has also been a, a, a huge provider of humanitarian assistance. In fact, the United States is the largest pro provider of humanitarian assistance to Syrian refugees. But as many of this in the room probably know, the United States has also approached Syria with uh, a, a great degree of caution when it comes to the question of any sort of military intervention, uh, whether it's arming the rebels or uh, the question of uh, establishing a no-fly zone or targeted military strikes, all of these military options, which I think my colleague Professor DeRoche is going to be talking about in greater detail, um, the U.S. Has, has opted at this point not to uh, pursue those. And I think it's in large part because of the many factors uh, that we can talk about, but certainly the, the, the degree to which the situation in Syria is, is chaotic and becoming more so. And I think some very, very serious questions about whether military intervention would, in fact, exacerbate a situation on the ground. So let me conclude by saying that I think where U.S. policy is now is a focus on diplomacy. We are engaged in active discussions with the Russians to try and uh, restart something called the Geneva process, which is attempting to bring both the Syrian regime and the opposition around the table to negotiate some sort of uh, transition. Uh, it faces enormous obstacles. I think the next time that uh, the U.S. and Russia are to meet is June 25th. No specific date has been set yet for this Geneva conference. The hope is July but that's already been, it has already been delayed as, as a result of some of the lingering differences. But I, I will conclude by saying my sense is that at this point, uh, diplomacy and that approach, given all the various uh, risks and difficulties, uh, and, and not the least which concerns about, frankly, civilian protection, I think in many ways uh, for Syria, the answer ultimately is going to have to be a diplomatic solution. And I'll leave it at that. Thank you, Mona, very much. Ian Panel. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, uh, I'm honored to be here um, among such a distinguished company. Um, I've been traveling into Syria for uh, pretty much two years. Um, 
uh, most of it has been illegal entry into the country, uh, approved by BBC management, because we felt that reporting on events in the north of the country, um, in uh, territory that was contested, uh, was uh, important for us to do, and that's why we took the decision to do that. Um, and I'd just like to talk a little bit about how the situation on the ground has evolved, um, how I see it. The BBC is a non-partisan organisation. I'm not a policy maker, um, and I don't have my own opinions. But what I can hopefully answer are questions about the reality on the ground, because it strikes me that uh, a lot of policy, a lot of decisions that are taken uh, are not necessarily uh, as well informed by, by the true story on the ground. And it is a very complex uh, picture. Um, our first crossing into um, Syria uh, was in July of 2011, and at that point, um, you know, the entire north of the country uh, was completely controlled by the government. The government controlled all the crossings, uh, and what you saw really was this protest movement that was in a state of evolution, um, uh, pretty much uh, splintered, local, um, based around families. Um, and what we've seen over the last year and a half is how that has evolved. And, of course, we read stories about uh, Jabhat al-Nusra, about foreign jihadis, and I'd just like to talk a little bit about what we actually see on the ground. So this time last year, um, the opposition started to coalesce around larger groups. Um, this time last year, we spent some time with a group called the Idlib Martyrs Brigade, um, which certainly sounds, uh, for some people, I'm sure, as if it's, uh, uh, you know, Islamist, that it's... Uh, possibly you know, Salafist, uh, but it really wasn't. This was essentially a secular movement. These people were mechanics, uh, um, falafel chefs. These were amateurs uh, armed essentially with old rifles trying to work out how to mount a campaign. Now, already at that point, the outside world was taking an interest. People were supplying weapons. Larger forces were coming to play. Um, but at that point, when the Syrian government talked about uh, foreign terrorists being inside the country. Largely speaking, it wasn't true. I remember, again, this time last year, uh, sitting with a group of rebels uh, in the north of the country, um, again, uh, civilians, uh, secularists. Yes, they, you know, most of them were Sunnis, but they certainly preached the language of inclusivity. Um, you know, that part of northern Syria isn't as mixed as other parts, and that's, I'll come on to that because that certainly is more problematic. And I know parts of the conflict have evolved into uh, a sectarian struggle, but I still don't believe that it is entirely defined by sectarian differences, and it doesn't necessarily um, have to be that way. Um, but I remember there was one uh, of the rebel commanders sat there who was kind of dressed all in black, had a serious beard, had... Um, you know, the, in, in a Salafi uh, style, uh, and the rest of them kind of joked with this guy that, you know, he was the Taliban, you know, amongst them, and they all thought this was very, very funny. Uh, but he was the exception to the rule at this point. You did not see people like that. You didn't see people who were uh, theologically, ideologically committed to uh, the cause, uh, and that has completely changed inside Syria. Um, a trip we did recently to um, Aleppo, province uh, south of the city in order to get to parts that we wanted to report on involved 
uh, essentially getting a permission slip from a Sharia court inside Aleppo uh, by one of the emirs from Jabhat al-Nusra. So what the Syrian government has been saying may not necessarily have been true to start off with, but it has in some ways also become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Many of the fears that the outside world had about what would happen in Syria if it became involved have come to pass anyway. Um, the conflict has spread. Um, this time last year, the, the UN was quoting figures of 9,000 Syrians dead. Uh, now it is something in the region of 90,000. That's in one year in Syria. Um, it has become radicalized. Um, it has become increasingly sectarian. And if there ever were a possibility of a clear initiative that possibly could bring a, a swift end to this conflict, I don't really see it now. It doesn't mean it's a lost cause. I don't think anyone uh, should view it as one, but it, it is as complex and as messy um, as you can imagine. Um, you know, I remember being in Iraq in 2006, and don't forget, in Iraq in 2006, people were talking about the division of the country. Uh, I believe Vice President Biden at that point put forward a plan which talked about splitting Iraq into three states to make it governable to try and reduce the violence. Um, you know, Lebanon, even in its darkest hour during the civil war and then after the war with Israel, when it was racked by political upheaval, you know, looked into the abyss but did not go that far. So I don't think you know, the, the, the breakup of Syria, which people are talking about, uh, the sectarian differences are very serious and should be treated so, but I don't think it is a done deal at the moment. Um, and, and to that end, I would certainly urge the international community and policymakers to be as engaged um, as possible. So I think it's worth thinking about the armed opposition as essentially two groupings, and it's changing all the time. Um, this is not a static situation. People talk about a stalemate, which um, we're very impatient, and the media are the worst, because if things don't change on the ground uh, in, a, in the space of two months, then we think, well, it must be... You know, nothing's, nothing's really happening, nobody's winning the battle. Um, we've seen, uh, certainly the Syrian government uh, have the upper hand in the south of the country. Uh, they've re-established control uh, south of Damascus and towards Dera. Uh, we know there's been fighting uh, on the Golan Heights uh, near the Israeli border. I believe they've taken back control of that border crossing in the last 24 hours. Um, but... Uh, it, it is not a straight line. Uh, this time last year, the armed opposition essentially controlled very little. It controlled a, a few villages around the north of the country, uh, had no real presence uh, anywhere south of that, nothing really in Damascus, and nothing in Aleppo this time last year. Um, so it, it has been supported, it has been sustained by uh, weapons coming in from outside of the country. Where have those weapons come from? Well, most of them have tended to come from uh, the Gulf. Uh, they have come from supporters uh, in Kuwait, in Qatar, um, in Saudi Arabia, elsewhere in the Islamic world. Uh, the Turkish intelligence is very effective and they are perfectly capable of closing off that border if they, they choose to do so. And for a long period, the rebels were unable to get any kind of weapons. Um, but that changed about this time last year. Uh, and suddenly they were able to get slightly smaller arms. But their contention has always been that they're given enough to fight and die, but not enough to win. Uh, and that is the reality on the ground, that still they're not 
heavily armed. Most of the heavy weapons that they have are weapons that they've seized from uh, government bases that they've, they've managed to overrun. And we, and we saw that uh, on our last trip, uh, fi essentially firing grad rockets that had been taken from one military base onto another Syrian government base. Um, so uh, the armed opposition has evolved. It's coalesced. Uh, Two, essentially two, two broad groupings. There are those who we, we can call Islamists, uh, which ranges from the most hardline elements, uh, those who've uh, sworn allegiance essentially to uh, Al-Qaeda. Um, and there are those who are more, on, more towards the secular side, but I don't really think there are many secularists left. There are a lot of fellow travelers who, who fight in Syria, and they move from one group to another, um, uh, which is why we should never see it as a static situation. These groups have been evolving all the time. This time last year, Jabhat al-Nusra was not really a force. I mean, they'd, they'd carried out some deadly bombings, um, and everybody feared this was al-Qaeda getting involved in uh, Syria. Uh, but the truth was they had no power, they had very little following. It was impossible to establish even where they were. And as I say, now they are essentially, Jabhat al-Nusra, Akhral, Sham in particular, um, which is, uh, a, again, a, a militant Islamic organization, uh, different from Jabhat al-Nusra in the sense that they are not jihadis. In other words, they have a certain vision for a uh, hard line Islamic State inside Syria, but they do not see the struggle as a wider regional struggle. This is what people tell you. Um, now, it, we also know that uh, many of the people who follow these groups follow them because that is where the focus of attention is, that they are the groups who have the money, they're able to pay fighters. You know, most of the people who pick up weapons uh, have not worked in Syria for at least 18 months. So for many of them, actually fighting has become the only way of managing uh, to earn a living. And they will probably move from group to group depending on which group is is getting money, which group is getting resources, which clearly for Western policymakers is something uh, to, to bear in mind. So I see an evolution uh, over the last 12 months. You now have a situation where essentially the armed opposition control pretty much most of northern uh, Syria, certainly the northern provinces, um, up to a line uh, kind of south of Aleppo city, south of uh, Idlib city, at which point the government starts to reassert control. Ethnically, it's pretty homogeneously uh, um, uh, Muslim and Sunni. That doesn't mean that there aren't exceptions. Um, but uh, so things have evolved, um, but they've also got to a point where you feel that the armed opposition is probably incapable of advancing much further than it actually has. It's, it's relied on audacity, uh, it's relied on guerrilla warfare to achieve what it has done. Um, it has relied on essentially David and Goliath tactics against a, a, a vastly superior military force, but one that is not geared to dealing with uh, an armed insurgency, which is essentially what it is, um, which is why you've seen that Hezbollah and Qusair were so effective because, of course, that's always been their greatest strength, um, is in guerrilla warfare as well. If you put the two together, then I think there is a, a potentially a very potent uh, force there. Um, I'd just like to talk about the humanitarian situation on the ground. Uh, our very first trip over was to, to visit 
people who are internally displaced living in tents in woods right on the border. I mean, you can literally see the, the, the road in Turkey uh, on the other side of the bushes and the barbed wire. Um, uh, since then, it's, uh, it has just spiralled out of control. Everywhere you um, travel, there are uh, dislocated, uh, displaced families uh, living in greenhouses, uh, living in caves. Um, we, we did one story and we were shown what was essentially an old um, Roman tomb uh, where a family had been sheltering, this was um, near Idlib city, in an area that was being contested between the armed opposition and the government. Um, and uh, my cameraman who's here went down into it uh, and discovered five small boys, five, six small boys, uh, sat there in the dark on their own. Their mother had gone out uh, to get food. That was a few hours earlier. Uh, they'd all been sat there cross-legged waiting for her to return um, and to take them out of there. Nobody knew that they were there. Um, you know, the humanitarian situation is, it is a crisis. It is as bad as I've ever seen it um, anywhere. I think it's, it's probably comparable to Afghanistan during a civil war. Um, uh, people are relying on handouts. Um, I, I have no doubt that foreign aid is, is making its way in, but there is no perception on the ground that the outside world has done anything at all. Um, uh, people receive humanitarian aid, fighters get some weapons, but there is a general sense inside Syria that they have been abandoned uh, by the outside world. People still to this day will ask, what is the difference between a Syrian and a Libyan? Um, it sounds like a bad joke. There is no answer, but that is their perception that they don't see why uh, the Libyans were assisted in a way uh, that they haven't been. You know, most of them are victims of a war that they didn't choose. Whatever their side, whatever their ethnicity, whatever their religion, um, they are ultimately the ones who pay the price because when the armed opposition moves into an area, then the government responds. Its bombing is pretty indiscriminate. You can't use artillery to pinpoint attacks, um, not without uh, advanced technology on the ground, which they generally don't use. Uh, and so, therefore, that's why you have quite so many killed from 9,000 this time last year to probably about 90,000 uh, this. So, um, it's a gloomy picture. Happy to take your questions. Um, and um, thank you very much for listening to me. Thank you, Ian. And next, uh, Colonel Dave DeRoche. <coughs> thank you, Dr. Anthony. I should start by saying that my remarks uh, do not reflect uh, the blessings of the Department of Defense or the United States government. I imagine Professor Sullivan will say something similar, but not speaking for the Department of Defense, I'm sure as heck not going to uh, pretend to speak for Professor Sullivan. Um, uh, today I wish to address two topics. The first is the role of the United Nations, and the second is the military implications of a no-fly zone. Uh, and I will deal with the United Nations in the context of coalition and uh, warfare in the United States. Every American president prefers to take military action with allies. Even the invasion of Grenada, it's generally forgotten, was formerly part of a coalition operation with various Caribbean states contributing token amounts of troops or police. Um, 
token by our side, but very significant for St. Kitts and Nevis, for example. Uh, this urge is particularly strong for a Democrat erected in, elected in the post-Iraq era. Of course, the gold standard for coalition operations is a blessing by the United Nations. Since the fall of the Berlin Wall, there have been only two U.S. military actions which did not have some sort of U.N. sanction or claimed sanction, if not explicit. One was Kosovo, the other was Iraq. We all know the story of Iraq and the problems of fighting as a coalition of the willing. Less well-known are the problems from the un-UN sanctioned actions in Kosovo. Foremost among these problems was the obstructive role played by Russia, which was determined to thwart what it saw as a U.S.-led power grab to replace a despotic Russian ally. Plus a change. As of last week's Gallup poll, 68% of Americans said they did not support military action in Syria if diplomacy or sanctions fail. An American president would ignore that number at his peril. Compounding this problem is the somewhat uncertain nature of the armed opposition which would emerge in control in Syria if Assad were to be replaced. As distinct from the unarmed, charismatic, democratic Syrian opposition which we see in Western capitals, the leaders of the armed opposition within Syria are uncertain at best and extremely shady at worst. Given this, a UN mandate would seem to be the minimum requirement for an American president to begin military action in Syria. But this will not happen so long as the Chinese and the Russians oppose a mandate. They feel they were hoodwinked when what they thought was a limited mandate to protect Benghazi from a massacre was expanded into a mandate for regime change in Tripoli. And building on Ian's comments there, that's why Libya is treated differently from Syria, because Libya was first. The um, experience of Libya has informed uh, and to a great extent shaped the international inaction on Syria. Even with a new Rice Powers team in place, analysis would suggest that unless there was a major humanitarian disaster occurring, not the slow motion one we're seeing now, or thought to be imminent, I'm talking something along the lines of the massacres in Rwanda or Srebrenica, then the U.S. will probably not take action without some sort of U.N. sanction. So that's my points on the U.N. And uh, I, I draw that from my experience working peacekeeping uh, in the Office of Secretary of Defense, which was very U.N. specific. My second point concerns the nature of a no-fly zone. I should caveat my remarks by saying that I am not an air defense artilleryman, uh, but rather served exclusively in light and airborne infantry and special operations forces. Soldiers who work with big equipment, such as Patriot batteries, they call people like me crunchies, because that's a sound we make when you run over us. So I'm, I'm a relatively low-tech my military experience is relatively low-tech. I, I, I was a guest at a major weapons exhibition uh, when I was in graduate school, and they were showing all these laser weapons, and then the salesman said, so what are you looking for in military stuff? And I said, I want a set of wool socks that don't have a seam across the toe and a, and a grease pencil that will write when the temperature is below freezing. Um, the beauty in being an academic is that you can plagiarize anything so long as you acknowledge it. Uh, so let me start by referring to a great panel on this issue of a no-fly zone held a few weeks ago at the U.S. Institute of Peace. You can hear the panel on the U.S. Institute of Peace website and the remarks, particularly of General Dave Deptula and Joseph Holliday of the uh, Institute for the Study of War, particularly informative. Uh, I should also point out that my NISA colleague Kip Whittington has written on this subject very, very informatively. If you go to the NISA Center website, you can link to that. And uh, Don Trombley has also uh, uh, spoken on the subject. I've plagiarized some of their work, but since I acknowledged it, I can plagiarize it. So let me make a few quick points. The first is that a no-fly zone is a euphemism for war. 
It sounds nice. It sounds like something you can do at distance, but it is an act of war, and it will involve killing people and destroying things. Inevitably, some of the killing and destruction will happen to things we don't want to harm. When this happens, our noble motives are forgotten, and the dominant narrative becomes Yankee-inspired death and destruction. So if we're going to discuss this issue, let us, dis let us discuss it without misconceptions. War, even in an age of push-button warfare and stealth bombers, remains exactly what General Sherman said it was. The second point is that there's a considerable definitional room in defining what a no-fly zone is. Our shared view, the sort of zeitgeist of defining a no-fly zone, is shaped by the decade-long operations over northern and southern Iraq. But a clever staff officer, and I've known quite a few in my day, could propose courses of actions which would not involve constant circling aircraft over Damascus, the complete destruction of every missile and radar installation, and the cratering of every runway. And I'd be glad to discuss these various scenarios in the questions. My my third point is that a no-fly zone would require a base somewhere close by. These bases would probably come with a cost. Turkey is the only credible base, but the ruling party there has issues of its own, particularly in the last week. And Turkey may insist on conditions which the U.S. will reject. Our relationship with Turkey is much more transactional than it was in the mid-80s when I uh, had the privilege of working briefly Turkish affairs. We can operate from more remote locations, but this will require considerable staging of expensive and scarce, key point is scarce, not expensive, military assets, particularly aerial tankers and aircraft carriers, which are still in high demand in the Gulf in support of operations in Afghanistan and to deal with the next act in the ongoing freak show that's North Korea. My fourth point is that Thank you, Mona. <laughs> You're very kind. My fourth point is that geography matters. Look, Syria is not Libya. The terrain is worst for air-to-ground operations. In Libya, most of the targets were on a flat, lightly populated littoral strip. Operations in Syria would involve flying over and through mountains in inhabited areas. This terrain is much better for the use of surface-to-air weapons than was Libya. And the calculations involved in conducting aerial military operations over Syria are much, much, much more complicated. My fifth point, and I haven't heard any other commentators do this, perhaps it's my my background, special operations, is that modern U.S. military practice is not to deploy a pilot into an area where you can't retrieve him should his plane be shot down. An amazing amount of Air Force Special Operations Forces, for example, are devoted to airman recovery. This means that any manned air activity carries with it the potential for ground combat, albeit of a very limited nature. We should understand the implications of what's being proposed. Don't let the salesman fool you. Airplanes get shot down and airplanes with pilots, you know, result in prisoners. My final point is my most important one. My study of history, and I welcome people disputing this view in the questions and answers, suggests that whatever type of no-fly zone is implemented will never satisfy those who seek a no-fly zone. If every fixed-wing aircraft in Syria is destroyed, we'll hear about helicopters engaged in military operation, as we did during the Shi'i uprising in southern Iraq after Desert Storm, where we had an effective fixed-wing no-fly zone. If the helicopters are destroyed, then we'll notice that most of the indiscriminate killing it being done by the regime is being conducted by indirect fire from mortars and artillery, as we saw in Sarajevo, or indeed by grad rockets, as Ian has just said. Now look, I don't blame insurgents for seeking to gain the maximum access of military support for their fight. They are in a struggle to the death against a very brutal Assad regime. I just want us to have the concept without misconceptions. Only the removal of Assad will diminish the demand signal for military intervention. 
I have not discussed the S-300, Patriot deployments to the regions or other technical matters, but if you're burning to hear that, I'd be delighted to take a question. Just know that most objective observers would define my military specialty as cannon fodder, and please discount my remarks accordingly. Thank you, and I welcome your questions. <laughs> Thank you, Dave. Um, Ms. Waxman. Uh, thank you, Dr. Anthony, for inviting my organization, the International Rescue Committee, here today. The conflict uh, in Syria has resulted in one of the most, the largest humanitarian emergencies in history. Ian talked about the massive scale of displacement inside the country, and just to put a, a number on it, the conservative estimates are that more than four million people are displaced internally, tens of millions are in need of humanitarian assistance, and more than one and a half million Syrians have sought refuge in neighboring countries. Just today, the United Nations launched its largest funding appeal ever for $5 billion to respond to the crisis in the region. For more than a year, uh, my organization, the International Rescue Committee, has been working with uh, Syrian-led partners to deliver vital medical aid for field hospitals and clinics in war zones across Syria. Mm -hmm. We are working inside Syria to deliver health care to those forced from their homes, people living on the border that Ian talked about, provide education to children who can no longer attend school and build safe places for traumatized uh, Syrian children. We also assist Syrian refugees in Jordan, Lebanon, and Iraq, supporting refugees in urban and rural communities throughout the region and reaching out to those who are suffering most. So far, we have raised and spent nearly $50 million on aid to Syrians, supported by, among others, the U.S., the U.K., European institutions, and private donations. I want to focus today on three issues. Uh, first is what the international community needs to do to get aid inside Syria. Second is how we can best support refugees in countries hosting them and to, to prevent an escalation of the tensions that Mona talked about. And third, how we can help refugees realize uh, their rights and protect their ability to flee from the conflict. First, uh, the IRC believes that the international community needs to increase support to those in need inside Syria. Although the U.S. and other donors have been generous in their response to the crisis, humanitarian needs far outstrip the, provide, the support provided. We need to significantly increase funding levels and do so quickly. The American government and American people deserve enormous credit for stepping in early and at a scale uh, in unprecedented assistance to the crisis, as one has said, the United States is the largest. Uh, donor, and it can play an even greater role not only as a donor but as a leverager of, of assistance. And the new UN appeal today provides an opportunity for the United States government to do just that. Equally important is that aid needs to flow through a diversity of channels. The international community really should continue to explore all ways to reach those in the worst of conflict zones in Syria, be it across borders from neighboring countries across conflict lines inside Syria, through the United Nations, International Committee of the Red Cross and Red Crescent, NGO, and Syrian relief structures. More aid needs to flow directly through Syrian partners, 
that especially those that are properly supported through intensive capacity building. Nascent Syrian institutions of governance and civil society also need assistance in building their core capabilities. The three key areas of need inside Syria continue to be food, health care, and fuel. The medical infrastructure has been eviscerated, doctors have been systematically targeted, and now that summer has arrived, providing increased support for emergency water and sanitation is essential to mitigate the spread and increase of disease. Importantly, the international community needs to ensure that humanitarian aid is not conflated with political objectives. Humanitarian assistance should be provided solely for the purpose of alleviating suffering based on need. Humanitarian action is about saving lives, irrespective of nationality, gender, race, political or religious beliefs, and affiliation. Conflating political and humanitarian aid jeopardizes humanitarian aid workers, access to vulnerable populations, and risks diverting already insufficient resources from reaching Syrians most in need of help. Second, the international community should support Syrian urban refugees and communities hosting them. While formal refugee camps continue to garner most attention and resources, that's not where most Syrian refugees are living. More than 70% live in urban and rural communities across the Middle East. If they have financial resources, they rent apartments, often sharing costs with numerous families. If they have family and friends, they live with them, although that's increasingly rare due to the strain on host families' resources. In order to survive, refugees that are incurring increasingly large debts are sending their children to work, engaging in earlier forced marriage, and exchanging sex for basic goods. Across the region, tensions between refugees and resource-poor host communities are rising. These dynamics are clear today in Lebanon. There are no refugee camps in Lebanon, and 100% of refugees in that country live in communities and villages across the country. Many are living in settlements that are spontaneously emerging, and as of May, uh, a country, Lebanon is a country of estimated 4.2 million people, it had, the country had opened its borders to more than half a million Syrian refugees. The UN uh, Refugee Agency conservatively predicts that by the end of 2013, one in five people in Lebanon, one million people, will be refugees from Syria. The UN appeal today uh, requests the largest amount for Lebanon. It's $1.2 billion. And this is a clear acknowledgement of the increasing tension on the Lebanese government and on the host communities inside the country that are absorbing this massive influx of people. So in order to address the, uh, this massive human need and forestall a humanitarian catastrophe, the International Rescue Committee believes that we should provide assistance to vulnerable Le Lebanese communities as well as the refugees from Syria. We also need to increase the quantity and quality of services provided to most uh, refugee groups, specifically refugee women, children, and non-registered refugees. We also need to supplement humanitarian assistance by ensuring that traditional development dollars in Lebanon target communities that are most affected by the refugee influx. Given the destruction in Syria, it may be months or years before displaced Syrians can return to destroyed homes and communities. So infrastructure and social services will obviously need to be rebuilt. 
and planning about the future of Syria needs to address a multiple uh, range of issues, including the needs of refugees and in internally displaced people. Finally, uh, it is essential that border countries, uh, bo countries bordering Syria remain, keep their borders open to provide safe haven for all those who can flee. The U.S. government should use sustained diplomacy to encourage countries in the region to keep their borders open. Though they may sound appealing, buffer zone and safe zone proposals have a poor record in practice and can create a false sense of security for civilians and displaced persons inside Syria. It will definitely take a political solution to end the civil war in Syria, and until then, it's imperative that the international community scale up and support operations both within Syria and in the refugee-hosting countries in order to forestall a regional crisis and protect the Syrian people. Appreciate the opportunity to join you today, and I look forward to answering your questions. Thank you. Thank you, Sharon. And our last speaker before we open the floor for questions is um, Paul Sullivan. Well, a lot of territory has been already covered. I have to give the usual caveats. Uh, these are my opinions alone. Do not represent those of the U.S. government, Georgetown, or any other institution I may be involved with. And now there's a very good chance I might just get myself into trouble. <laughs> this could be Obama's Rwanda. How many people have died? This is not slow motion. From 2,000 to 90,000 in one year? This is far from slow motion. My head hurts when I think of Syria, and my heart hurts when I think of Syria. My head because it's so complicated. And also because if you want to look at this at a strategic 35,000 foot level, this could turn into a maelstrom. No kidding. Look at the neighborhood. Israel, Jordan, Turkey, Lebanon, the Palestinians, the Kurds, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Bahrain. There was a Bahraini killed a couple of days ago in this war. Iran is involved. The Russians are a big part of the problem that's going on here. The Port of Tartus has kept this going for some time. Syria has its own internal maelstrom. But thinking as a strategic person or strategic thinking about this idea, you know what really gets to me? This gets to me. This right here gets to me. The children in Syria. If you didn't read this report yet, read it. I think of myself as, well, often a tough guy. I work with the military. I'm supposed to be a tough guy. I read through some of this stuff. I held my head in my hands and I wept. This is what's happening here. It's a shattering of society. It's a shattering of the economy. It's a shattering of infrastructure. This is a very, very dangerous situation. The question is, how do we get from here to there? $5 billion, I heard, for an appeal. 
How does $500 billion sound for trying to get this country somewhat stabilized? Somewhat stabilized. We have to figure out our preferred outcomes in the short run, the medium run, and the long run. And I don't think that thinking has even started for what's going to be needed to be done. Maybe the first start would get to what Ms. Waxman was saying. Start to take care of the children and the people. Make their lives a little bit better. One of the main things we're going to have to face in the future is how angry these children are going to be and how this is going to come back at us. Not just the United States, but the neighborhood and possibly the world. Have food, have clinics, take care of the orphans. Maybe bring some of them to this country. This is not bleeding heart thinking. This is strategic thinking and just being human. Do well by doing good. Do well by doing good. We can talk about all the military strategy in the world and all the big theories of political science, but it all boils down to the people on the ground that Ian has talked about and others have talked about. This is about people. The no-fly zone was talked about by David. A lot of people are mentioning this is a possibility to do this. No-fly zones are messy. People die. People get angrier. We can use soft power and hard power as a combination, but frankly, it's probably too late. And it will probably be too little. This could have been dealt with months ago. It wasn't. It's getting worse. It's pulling in the rest of the region into the whirlpool of Syria. Look at what's happening in Lebanon, what's happening in Iraq, what's happening on the border with Israel. One could look at this as a 3D moving spider web of intrigue and dangers. Every time you try to change something with a policy move, everything else changes. And also there's a military term for this kind of a situation, VUCA. Volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And Washington is not particularly good with any of those. Could we build a coalition to work on this? I doubt that right now. And the maelstrom is coming. The timidity is astonishing. And it's not just timidity coming out of Washington. It's all over the place. So what's the option? Let it play itself out? Give war a chance? Get Iran involved? Hezbollah getting more powerful? This spinning out of control? We had a senior Sunni official, Mufti even, saying for a call for jihad. There's an effective jihad out of Lebanon by Nasrallah and Hezbollah. Again, the Russians are there, the Iranians are there. An Iranian general was killed in Syria. The GCC is a loose cannon in this situation in many ways. They're sending material up there, not the GCC itself, but people in there. And it's really becoming out of control.
The Sunni-Shia split in this whole thing, I think, is magnified beyond what it should be. A lot of this has to do with money, power, and strategic positioning, and the sectarian differences are a veil to all of that. There's a great deal of nihilism in all of this. And the more a situation like this continues, the more nihilism you will have. It's a lot easier to deal with people who believe in something. When their lives are shattered and they believe in nothing, it's far more difficult. The harsh winds of the potential Syrian-sparked maelstrom could have global effects in oil and other markets and other strategic issues. Batten down the hatches, get out the sea anchors, here we go. Thank you, Paul. <clears throat> it's now my uh, privilege to ask <coughs> questions of the <coughs> presenters uh, from the cards uh, filled with questions that have been uh, submitted. Um, Mona, two f for you, and I'll try to have two for each of the others, but it'll also necessitate that your answers be perhaps uh, shorter. Uh, than might be the case uh, elsewhere where we had longer time. Uh, so try to keep your responses three minutes, something of that nature. Uh, Mona, uh, two questions. Uh, how does Iran's involvement with Hezbollah and the Assad regime affect the administration's, the Obama administration's political calculus? And the uh, Second one, uh, in what ways would the current Israeli government, if at all, prefer the Assad regime to remain in power or deal with whatever new regime might rise to replace it? Thank you. Uh, on Iran, I think the answer is uh, Iran's involvement makes uh, the administration's calculus inordinately more complicated. <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, just to take a step back and look at Iran's role in this and, and Hezbollah, Iran is the, the staunchest supporter of the Assad regime. They have provide, provided financing, they have provided weapons, they have provided uh, advice, they have, as was noted, some um, IRGC commanders on the ground. Um, and you now have, as I noted, a deepening involvement by Hezbollah uh, to the extent that there is an estimate that there are perhaps thousands of Hezbollah fighters um, on the ground operating in Syria. So in terms of uh, political calculus, I think what we have now is, unfortunately, an inordinately more complicated situation. Uh, I think it underscores Iran's ability, quite frankly, to play a key role. I think Iran and Hezbollah have made a strategic decision to go all in, in terms of their support for the Assad regime. I believe that, that in the case of Hezbollah, it, they view this as an existential battle. Uh, and as a result, they're going to be, I think, extraordinarily uh, ten, uh, sort of uh, persistent uh, adversaries in this. From my perspective, I think ultimately we need to consider Iran's role in this, particularly if one is looking at uh, uh, political diplomatic solution. Um, 
Iran, I would argue, holds the, the power to play a real spoiler. And so therefore, on some level, uh, there's, the calculus has to take on board Iran's role uh, and how to perhaps counter that. And that, that could be done in, in a variety of ways. In terms of Israel and the Israeli government's pr preferences, I, I would not uh, pretend to, to have insight into what their preferences are. I think at this point, um, as I noted, Israel is, is viewing understandably what's happening in Syria with increasing alarm. And I don't, I think from, from Tel Aviv's uh, perspective, it's hard to see, frankly, any good outcome right now in Syria. And therefore, I think they are very much in the mode of uh, establishing what their key interests are, laying out very clear red lines, both in terms of uh, protection of Israeli people, their borders, and again, I think uh, the third goal being uh, pre preventing the transfer of strategic weapons. And I think in pursuit of those three goals, they will do what they deem necessary. Thank you, Mona. These uh, questions are for Ian. Uh, and there are three. And given your recent experiences uh, in being in Syria, as opposed to viewing it from a Western capital, as is the case with many of us in this room, uh, might you comment on the degree to which um, American and or other intervention thus far uh, has helped more or hurt more? Second question, how sustainable is the possible reality of an Alawite state spanning Damascus, Ladakia, Tartus, and southwest Homs uh, how sustainable do you see that as, a, as an outcome? And lastly, how will the Kurds of Syria's northeast recent de facto self-governance change, if at all, if the rebels secure reins of power and or if the regime prevails? Ian. Uh, thank you very much. I will try and keep my um, answers brief. Um, certainly in terms of perception on the ground, on the question of degree that the U.S. intervention or external intervention has helped hers. I mean, uh, in terms of the perception on the ground, uh, very few people believe that there actually has been any intervention. Um, uh, Sharon talked about uh, the humanitarian aid. Clearly, a lot of it has been delivered on the ground, um, and you, you see that happening. But by the time it reaches people on the ground, they have no idea where it's come from. A sack of flour appears in a village, it's distributed, people go home, they make bread, and that's it. Um, so, uh, you know, if, if the delivery of aid and assistance is part of a policy objective, I would probably argue that the message isn't getting through um, at the moment. Um, in terms of intervention uh, militarily, uh, has that helped or hurt? Well, le let's be honest here. Uh, without uh, weapons, people can't fight. So, uh, so to that extent, the delivery of arms and munitions, uh, ostensibly tools for defense originally, uh, have become tools of offense. Uh, it has led to greater killing. So the supply of weapons to the Syrian government um, by its protectors and friends and the supply of weapons to the rebels has essentially walked. That's what's led 
uh, to this massive loss of life over the last 12 months. Um, I, I certainly don't pretend to know what the answer is in Syria, but what I can tell you, the only thing that is guaranteed is that more people will die and the majority of them will be civilians. Um, uh, the idea of an Alawite state, look, look, plenty of people talk about this. Um, it, you know, even uh, Latakia and Tartu's provinces are not um, as uh, homogenous as people like to think. Of course, it is traditionally uh, an Alawite heartland. People think perhaps this is the government's plan B, its fallback plan. Uh, I think it would be incredibly difficult to pull off. Um, I, it, it's hard to imagine that that would be a desirable outcome for anybody in the country. You know, I go back to my earlier point that you know, sectarianism in Syria absolutely exists, and it's been driven by extreme elements on both sides, by the Hadis of Jabhat al-Nusra, um, and also by groups like the National Defense Force, which is essentially should be her militia. Uh, militia. Um, but they, they don't have to have the day, and an Alawite state does not have to be inevitable. Seems to me a highly fanciful idea. Historically, of course, there's been something similar to that, but only if it's sustained by an outside power. Um, uh, lastly, on the Kurds, uh, you know, we, we've had some contact with the Kurds, not an enormous amount. Um, uh, they certainly have managed to govern themselves in some areas. The Kurds are working with the rebels. I mean, there are some Kurdish villages you um, travel through, and they've essentially they, they run their own village now. There's the PKK flag flies in some of these villages, but they have an agreement on the ground. You know, there's a, there are a lot of very practical agreements that seem to fly in the face of everything else you hear. Certain parts of the country, the electricity flows as an agreement between rebel commanders and the government. Um, so similarly for the Kurds, that, that local agreement stands. They're allowed to run their own affairs. The rebels aren't bothered. But when the next government of Syria sits in Damascus, whoever that is, then that will be a, a question that has to be addressed, how much autonomy is granted. I certainly don't hear Kurds calling for a separate state within Syria, but they will absolutely demand a, a high degree of autonomy. Thank you, Ian. Uh, next for uh, you, Dave. Uh, what can be done to prevent and or end spillover violence into Syria's neighboring states. Uh, part two, what might change the calculus of Russia and or China moving uh, to support Assad to a, a greater degree than they already have? Is there any point where they might agree to facilitate a transition of leadership? If so, where might that point be? And uh, third, how does the instability in Syria change Israel's calculus, if at all, with Iran's nuclear program? Thank you for the, thank you for the questions. They're all easy ones. And if I could give you competent answers to those questions, I'd be uh, upstairs surrounded by sycophants instead of uh, in front of the lights being grilled. <laughs> um, but that being said, I'll give you my best effort. Uh, what can be done to prevent and end spillover violence? Um, spillover violence I find to be an unhealthy metaphor. 
Um, you know, borders, it, it, it's based on this idea that borders are inviolate and impermeable, and that if violence occurs in one state, then it happens in another, that somehow your sovereignty has been defiled, never to be recovered. Um, borders are permeable. You know, violence uh, in Juarez, well, it doesn't find its way from Juarez to, to um, uh, El Paso, but it does go from Nogales, Sonora, into Nogales, uh, Arizona, and it can be restored. And states uh, realize this, uh, and they can either ratchet up border security or ratchet it down. Uh, what we've done is in some states that we're concerned about, such as Jordan, you've seen the recent deployment of the 1st Armored Division headquarters to prepare for humanitarian uh, uh, support, and I would imagine any other contingency which should become uh, possible. Also, you've seen the deployment of a Patriot battery, a U.S. Patriot battery to Jordan. Presumably that's to deter any possible missile strikes from Syria into Jordan. Uh, measures like that seem to be the effective ones. And the states that, uh, you know, are concerned about spillover violence, you know, for example, if you look at Iraq, yes, violence could spill over to, into Iraq, but to what effect? Um, you know, the, the border immediately alongside Syria, there isn't much there. And so, uh, you know, you can have depth. It's just like, you know, you don't have to, the U.S. Border Patrol does not have to intercept every single illegal alien the moment they cross the border. You know, in areas that are desert, they can stand back 40 or 50 miles and then deal with the problem. Uh, so it, it, uh, there are steps being made, but the concept itself, I think, is relatively unhelpful. You know, what you have to do instead is engage each state as an independent element and say, what are the elements of stability in this state, and then address those elements. That, I think, is a more helpful frame for analysis. Uh, the second, what will lead to a change of leadership in China or Russia, a transition of leadership? Now, my own assessment is that China is following Russia's lead. So let's just put that aside. That could be incorrect, but... I'm the guy talking. So, um, so let's let's just look at Russia. Uh, Russia, I think, feels humiliated. They feel that they were misled over Libya, and they've realized we just had one client overthrown and shot in a ditch. What will be our place in the world if we give up the only place where we have a naval base in the Mediterranean? And, uh, you know, to no effect. So there needs to be some sort of a graceful transition. There can't be a win-loss from the Russian perspective. There has to be a win-win. Now, this runs counter to some of our goals. And in particular, the, the, one of the big things when I look at human rights, which are a, a motivating factor, as Professor Sullivan said, and should be, but they're not necessarily determinative factors. One of the big issues when I talk to people of human rights is this idea of impunity. Um, it is quite possible that um, Assad will remain in power. It is quite possible that Assad will meet the same end as Gaddafi did. But it would seem to me that the easiest way to um, convince Russia to play a more helpful role in this scenario would be to say, look, your client, who has been your client forever, he's never been an American client, um, he will have a graceful easement from power. Uh, and, you know, might wind up in Moscow, might, you know, his... Both Bashar al-Assad and his wife are graduates of the University of London. His wife is a British citizen, you know. The British government recently has great problems deporting people they don't like. If they could somehow make their way there, they'd probably be there for at least 15 years. Uh, but that would, run, that would run counter to the idea in Western that people who commit human rights violations should be punished. 
That being said, Idi Amin lived out his days peacefully in Jeddah. Uh, and then instability in Syria and Israel, uh, this is just an educated guess and only a marginally educated guess. But it would seem to me, if I were an Israeli leader, uh, I would prefer having a coherent centralized state where there are discrete buttons that I can push, where there are institutions that I could take actions against and get a predictable reaction, that that would be more stable for me uh, than, than this maelstrom of uncertainty, uh, which is basically the nature of the Syrian opposition. I'm sorry if these aren't cheerful answers, but it's the truth as I see it, and you know, I'd be happy to engage afterwards with anybody who cares to dispute that. Thank you. Sharon, here two for you. Why does the use of uh, chemical weapons in Syria constitute a quote-unquote red line, while the deaths of tens of thousands of civilians do not or have not uh, up until this point in your presentation to anywhere near the same degree? And how do Syrians view this distinction made by the West of what is and is not acceptable by the Syrian uh, government? And further on that, um, with regard to Iraq, uh, is it not the case that Syria took in 1.3 million uh, Iraqis in the early years of the U.S.-led invasion and occupation? Uh, and the U.S., until now, correct me if I'm wrong, the questioner puts it, the U.S. has yet to allow in as many as 30,000 Iraqis, and many of whom have uh, put their lives on the line for the United States as translators, drivers, interrogators, and the like. And uh, lastly, how has Assad's approach, if at all, to civil unrest been informed by events in Egypt, Libya, and elsewhere. What lessons, if any, might Assad have learned from other revolts that have allowed him to remain in power? So thank you for the questions. Uh, let me just uh, caveat all of this by saying that as a humanitarian organization, we have to tread a very careful line in uh, not answering political questions, but let me do uh, the best I can do. First of all, on your question about Iraq, uh, and, and Syrian refugees. Yes, it is absolutely true that many Iraqis fled the violence in in Iraq during during the war there and found safe haven in Syria. Many of them are now going back to Iraq, and it is in fact true that many uh, Iraqis were resettled by the United States translators uh, and others who worked for the American government. That program continues, and the United States has resettled tens of thousands of Iraqis and will continue to do so in, in the future. Uh, in terms of Syrians, we, we and the international community have not yet reached a point where a massive resettlement program is, has been instituted. There is some uh, small-scale resettlement, and I think that's an, an area that the international community needs to contemplate and, and plan for in, in the future should this conflict uh, persist. In terms of your question about targeting of civilians, as a humanitarian organization, our 
our, we don't have a red line on chemical weapons. Our view is that the government should not target civilians, period, and that those civilians who are targeted and who are in danger absolutely must have the ability to flee and seek safe haven in host in neighboring countries. That's why we so strongly advocate for the, the principle of open borders to make sure that those civilians who are targeted in any way, shape, or form or who feel a, f a fear of persecution can find safe haven outside of the war zone. Uh, your third question, remind me, was about Assad? Uh, the lessons uh, from Libya and Egypt, uh, to what degree, if at all, have they informed Assad in terms, perhaps, of what he might be able to succeed in getting away with by remaining in power? Well, what again, yeah, I mean, from a humanitarian perspective, you know, we're, we're, we're not in a position to analyze lessons learned from any, any government action. Our view and our position is that regardless of the actions of any government, civilians ought not to be targeted, and if they are f feeling in danger, that they, that they ought to have the ability to flee and find safe haven. Okay. Uh, Paul, uh, for you, um, would you come at the question that was originally put to Ian? Uh, how will the Kurds of Syria's northeast recent de facto self-governance change if the rebels uh, secure uh, reins of power and or if the regime prevails? And in what ways, if any, are, are we still too soon to say, uh, have the events in Turkey in the last week uh, impacted one way or the other on Turkey's role in uh, humanitarian matters? or um, security issues? Well, I'll take the uh, Turkey question first. It, it's just a beginning situation where I don't think it's clear what's going to be happening with this. Of course, it wasn't exactly clear what was going to happen when the first demonstrations began in Egypt and in Libya and in Syria and in other countries. These are, it could be a simple demonstration, it could be a, a discussion of political differences, or it could spin into something else. But there's a huge difference between Turkey and these other countries I mentioned. Uh, Erdogan was elected. He's not a dictator. Uh, and Turkey also has a long history of a certain degree of dissent <laughs> being cracked down upon, and we're really not seeing that right now. And this is, in many ways, a, a maturation of the uh, society in Turkey. It, people are speaking their minds. It's happening in a, in a small uh, maidan, a, a grassy space, although most of it's actually paved over, in uh, Turkey. Where is this going? I don't know. How will it affect their ability to work on this issue? Turkey's a, a big economy. It has a powerful military, significant uh, intelligence services, and uh, they'll be able to handle many different things at the same time. But if this starts to spin out of control in one way, then Turkey's going to have to look inwardly for a while, and that may affect things. But Turkey is definitely worried about what's happening on its borders in Syria, in Iraq, and elsewhere. It's a serious concern for them, particularly when missiles go over and start killing Turks in the small villages near the border. <coughs> what was the other question? 
uh, whomever would like to uh, respond to these questions. Um, the New York Times reports today of um, advanced Israeli preparations for the possibility of a third Lebanon war, uh, which Israeli sources say will be a shocking our war of uh, total uh, destruction comment um, related. Please elaborate on Saudi Arabia and Qatar's role in promoting um, uh, one side or another of this uh, conflict. Yeah. Any takers? I'm happy to talk about Saudi. Mona. Uh, on the question of Saudi and Qatar, uh, both uh, Gulf countries have played a role in supporting the Syrian opposition, various armed groups. I think the issue to date has been that um, rather than coordinating their support, uh, they have instead often worked at cross purposes, that each uh, country has sort of been jostling for uh, influence um, in, in the Syrian theater. And so that unfortunately has had the effect, I think, of, of deepening those differences. Uh, we're in a stage now where I think that there, there is more attempt to be made to sort of um, centralize channels of support and, uh, and have uh, the, the Gulf countries, Saudi and Qatar in particular, work more closely in harmony. Whether or not that's going to be successful or not remains to be seen. With regard to that also, I, uh, Qatar is involved in many different countries in the region. Uh, Egypt, it's involved in Libya, it's all over the place. It's a small country. It doesn't have exactly a lot of strategic depth. So uh, I think a way of looking at this is that Qatar is playing with fire in many of these countries and it could come back at them. I hope that doesn't happen. Uh, the coordination between Qatar and Saudi Arabia is definitely limited. The idea of another shock and awe war Hmm. Anyone in this room feel comfortable with that? Can anyone see the ripples and waves that could come with that? Do you think it will end in Syria? Do you think it will end in Iraq? Has it ended in Iraq? Bad idea. Ian, um, question to you regarding more recent events in Turkey um, on the role that the Erdogan uh, government uh, can now play uh, given what's been occurring in the last week. Um, I, I, do, I really defer to Paul on, on Turkey. Um, Turkey has been our host for many endless weeks on the border, but um, uh, while some of my colleagues have focused on uh, politics in Istanbul, that, that isn't me. I, I will pick up just on the Qatar-Saudi question. There certainly seems to have been a movement, and we, it's difficult to ascertain to what extent this has actually happened, that actually the focus of power in terms of support for the rebels has shifted towards Saudi Arabia, away from Qatar. Um, there was a meeting that took place in Saudi Arabia in the last couple of weeks uh, with members of the Syrian opposition. Uh, General Salam Idris, who is the sort of nominal military commander in charge of um, uh, the recognized military structure within inside the country, seems to be 
being empowered by the West and by Saudi Arabia to be a unified military figure. It seems to me and there's a lot spoken about the opposition being very divided, the political opposition being uh, ineffective. That, that's very true. The center of power is with the armed men. Uh, and it's those military commanders who will be the ones potentially capable of affecting any kind of political impact on the ground. Uh, and it's difficult to be sure, and there's an interesting piece written in Foreign Policy ma magazine, I think today, uh, by Hassan Hassan, who's, who's monitored this movement from Qatar to Saudi Arabia, um, specifically talking about the battle for Qusair as Saudi Arabia's first battle inside uh, Syria. And the suggestion is, Mona may well know better than I that Western policymakers, in particular in this town, are trying to, they see that as potentially a credible way forward of unifying the armed opposition. Before uh, thanking the audience and uh, speakers, I wanted to um, extend a note of appreciation again to C-SPAN for its uh, outsized uh, role in making decisions uh, through a myriad of uh, opportunities and possibilities uh, to better inform the <coughs> English-speaking uh, uh, public on these thorny issues. Uh, it's hard to recall a more thorny, complex, and at the same time relevant and urgent a, a program and event that the National Council has been privileged to host here in the nation's capital on Capitol Hill than the one we've been uh, treated to for the last um, uh, two hours. Uh, and yet at the same time, with a note of humility, none of the speakers or any of those in the audience uh, would claim to be bereft of blemish or devoid of defect or free from flaw. Uh, none have uh, any pretense of having a monopoly on the method, uh, copyright on the concept, a trademark on the technique, or uh, a patent on the process. Um, so we thank all of you for coming, and um, we've got a lot of food for thought and a lot of thought for food uh, until the next event. Thank you all. <laughs>